Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Welcome to the Travelers Podcast. I'm Brother Ali. Very glad you're here. This is a different episode, and I'm going to have to do a little bit of storytelling to just get you up to speed on the conversation that you're about to hear so you have some context for it. And I think we need to start in 2019. So the year leading up to 2020, and really the a couple years leading up to 2020, were very difficult for me personally. Um, my business, even though I was doing a lot of really successful touring and sold out shows and big shows and in 2017 released an album that people really loved that did really well, uh, things were going well in that way, but my business just wasn't set up right and my finances weren't set up right. And so I was needing to tour and lecture and speak almost every day just to make ends meet. It just wasn't in a good state. A lot of artists get into that. I'm not alone in it, but it just is what it is. But it was taking a real toll on my voice and my body and to a certain degree, my family. I mean, I think we're all pretty special people and we love each other like crazy. So it's not like we were, you know, about to split up or something, but it was very, very difficult. Um, That was around the time that my wife got her master's degree. We had two babies during that time. It was just a really busy, challenging time. And I had to really put a lot of strain on myself and my family just to make ends meet. So then here comes the pandemic in 2020, and now I can't even do all of that. So it's like, now what? You know, you thought you had problems before. Now what do you do? Then the police killed George Floyd in South Minneapolis, where we lived, in broad daylight, which led to a subsequent uprising. Um, My wife's a black therapist from the Bronx, and that was extremely triggering for her. Uh, she also is a therapist. And so, you know, and her office is right in that neighborhood. And so she is trying her best to hold it together. I'm trying to support her, trying to support these babies. We have four kids, one of whom has special needs. And we actually just discovered that during the pandemic. Um, and she also is trying to her best to serve her clients, but whom she can't see and hold in person. And so really challenging. Along with that, I had just made the decision to change my business situation, which meant going fully independent and no longer doing my business on the Rhyme Sayers record label, which is has been my artistic and home for 20 years. These are people that I love. These are people that I started my career with. These are people that I've lived a lot of life with. And also they provided a safety net because my parents are both gone. I got four children. Like I said, one of them got special needs. Uh, My wife's family is amazing, but my wife's mother died of COVID. Uh, And then also, you know, we talk to them every day, love them, very, really incredible people, but they live in a project. They can't help us and we can't move in with them. You know, they're still in New York. So I stepped away from my record label during that time as well to, to form my own thing. And Along with that, there was this kind of, I use the term uh, cancel culture, you know, I, I, I wish there was a better term, but there was something like that happening in the Twin Cities music scene on Twitter that because we couldn't actually go and be in community, it kind of felt at that time like the community was turning against us. And I wasn't named in it specifically, but also nobody said we don't mean Brother Ali. It basically kind of turned into this thing that the, the narrative kind of became that the Twin Cities music scene 
while that we had been really celebrated people and me especially like there was for most of my adult life I couldn't go out in public without some without my community and everybody around me telling me how great I was and that's not a normal way to be we're not entitled to that but that was my and my family's reality for a long time and then because we couldn't go outside and be with people it felt like the narrative became that the Twin Cities music scene was this big network of horrible people that just harm others. And that even if you didn't do anything, you were supporting a network and you were quiet and all this kind of stuff. So it was really challenging. And then in the midst of all of that, we got an invitation from some people that we knew to like, why don't you ride out the pandemic in Istanbul? And Istanbul, Turkey is a place that we know and love. My wife studied here and I'd come to visit, and it's a very meaningful place for us. And we had always had a, kind of this romantic idea that someday we'd live in Istanbul, but it's like, all right, let's try it. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's try it. So really kind of honestly traumatic, and I, don't, I, I know a lot of people overuse that word, but this really traumatic experience, too, of needing to get out of our house and so just like packing up our home where we raised our kids and all this stuff. It was very, very challenging and got to Istanbul, did not realize how difficult it would be. It's very hard to move here. It's very hard to live here. And so that was the ending part of the year. And so 2020 was very, very challenging for us, just like it was for a lot of people. At the end of the year, though, we started to realize that like, okay, we can make this happen. We can make this work. I had the idea to do a live streamed performance on the first day of 2021, New Year's Day. Brother Ali live from Istanbul, New Year's Day, 2021. Um, you know, the, there was, I lived in a neighborhood with a really great filmmaker named Mustafa Davis, him and his son worked together. And so we shot it together. So I'm on the rooftop overlooking you know, this incredible city with this backdrop at nighttime, I'm performing and they're like the people that are filming and documenting it are people I was close with. So that part was great. It was a dope performance. We made money. People loved it. I feel great about it. We're probably going to, I want to come up with some kind of way to show it because like we still have it and I'd love for people to see it. But along with that, so it was this really beautiful way to like really acknowledge this hopeful, faithful, optimistic, bright feeling that I was feeling about 2021. So, I mean, Yasin Bey did the intro for it. Um, it was just amazing, really beautiful. But I had been doing on our tours a lot of times we do VIP meet and greets with a limited number of people. So we did a virtual one of those. We did a Zoom call that lasted, I'm not exaggerating, over five hours. This story, by the way, you can hear a, long, a fuller version of this. If you're part of the caravan, me and Dan Chisholm, who's interviewing me on this podcast, uh, I actually, at the beginning of this conversation, interviewed him and we talked about our friendship. I'm just going to give you the cliff note, the short version here, because it was really long. But if you're part of the caravan, you'll be able to hear that part of the conversation as well. And it's really deep and it's really beautiful. It's just this episode got so long, we couldn't share it all with you. We didn't want to give you a four-hour episode. Uh, but in any case, we did a five-hour Zoom session with a limited number of people. It sold out really quickly, VIP situation. One of those people was Dan Chisholm. Dan was a longtime listener and supporter and fan. And he said in this 
meeting or in this call, he's this VIP virtual situation. He said, man, I just got to be real. I don't really know much about Islam, but something in my heart is telling me that I am being extremely drawn and called to Islam. And I don't know, what. how do I go about doing this? And I've had the really good fortune, me and my wife, of accompanying a lot of people on this journey to becoming Muslim and exploring Islam. And for some people who uh, were Muslim, or born and raised in Muslim families, but because of the culture or whatever, just haven't been practicing. So they're coming back now and they want something that's like culturally relevant. So this is something that me and my wife have done a lot of. And I do it without expectations or pressure. It's completely between a person and the divine, whether or not they become Muslim. I'm not keeping a tally. I don't. I'm, it's not like, well, if I put all this time into, I'm very happy to just share whatever I know and feel and love about this religion because I believe what Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and so many other people have said, which is not only is this thing deeply, profoundly healing and true on a personal level, but also on a on a societal level. These people believed that Islam is a healing balm for people. And he's, Malcolm X came back from Hajj and said, I know I said the white man is a devil. I saw people that would be called white in America. They're not white because they're Muslim. And if people who believe that they're white in America would go through this process of Islam, it would be do the same thing that he believed that it was doing for him and for the black community. It's this rehumanizing process that's healing and that's a, a reset and a recalling to one's original self and humanity and balance and virtue. And it's amazing. So my man, Dan Chisholm says, I and he's just got that, I just feel it all on him, even through a Zoom call. Some people are very sincere and they're serious. And it's like, oh man, something's happening inside them. And I would love to accompany them on this journey. But even if people don't become Muslim, I'm so happy to just talk about and share with people. So me and Dan exchange WhatsApp contacts. And from January, 2021 until now, We've developed this really beautiful friendship. Dan became a Muslim. I've been really blessed to help him just make that transition. And so when I met him, he was at a high. He was at a high in his life. When you hear him talk, you're going to hear somebody that sounds like a nice Colorado white dude. People would, that would meet him now have no idea what he's been through. This man was born into just generational trauma and abuse of all kinds and addiction of all kinds. Really very, very, very rough stuff. He goes through all of that, gets addicted himself, ends up in the street economy himself, and goes to prison. Gets out of prison and really dedicates himself to being sober and to getting his life together and to breaking the chain. And he does it. He adopts a dog first. He gets a dog and he's like, all right, I'm going to take care of this dog. I'm going to love this dog. This is how I'm going to show myself that I am capable not only of being stable for myself, but I'm going to care for another being. And then if I do that, then I'm going to see about starting a family because he'd never seen it. You know what I'm saying? It didn't happen in his family. He's breaking the cycle. He's a lot like my wife, a lot like a lot of the people I know and love. He's like, I'm breaking the cycle. I'm going to start with this dog. Gets a dog, takes care of the dog. Along the way, he connects with his wife who he is head over heels in love with. If you know Jan Chisholm, you know that his wife, Geraldine, is the cornerstone of his world. Like he loves it. And that's how I am with my wife. 
So it's a bonding point. Like when you just love the hell out of your wife, it's really helpful if your friends feel a similar way. You know what I'm saying? Because that's something you can bond over. So he succeeds in being clean and sober. He marries this amazing woman. Uh, he's got a dog. They have a son. He, he has a baby. He's got a son. He's like, yo. Actually names the baby after the dog. <laughs> That's some white, white, white people stuff. Named, but I mean, he loved the dog and named the son after the dog. And even without higher education, all this stuff and having a record, he's got a really dope job. He works in, he does like um, the technical side of like these big conferences. So like all the audiovisual stuff, when you, if you go to like a huge conference put on by whatever, he was the guy that was doing the, the AVs, the audiovisual stuff. And he's great at it. He's traveling all over the world uh, doing these things. He's got, you know what I'm saying, he's staying in nice hotels. He's making good money. They bought a house. Doing great. Like, this dude did it. He succeeded in every measurable way. And now he's become friends with his one of his favorite rappers. And they're Muslim together. And this whole thing is happening. So it's like, yo, this beautiful moment to witness in somebody's life. And then, as it often does, it started to come apart in a lot of ways. First, the dog died. And it's like, damn, really painful. You know, I'm not a dog person, but I've witnessed that love and that pain. Shout out to all the dog people out there. I've never, I get it. I've seen it firsthand. I know how real that is. Then he, then he and his wife find out that his son has really, really, really serious special needs. Um, so he has cerebral palsy. He has epilepsy. He has autism. It's no joke. Like, this guy is going to need a lot of care. Then he loses his job. Uh, then his dad, who he's, like, repairing his relationship with his dad, and his dad has been sick, then his dad dies. And it just so happened that I was in Colorado on tour uh, and we were together when he got the phone call that his dad died. And so it's just struggle, struggle, struggle. But because of our shared framework and all of the tools and all of the stuff that the Islamic spiritual tradition offers. So Islam is a belief tradition. It's a It's a practice tradition. It's like a you know, it's a system of beliefs, it's also a system of practice, and it's also a system of understanding the spiritual self, purifying the heart, disciplining the ego, trying to become a beautiful person on the inside. And each one of these areas is an entire universe. And so we get to work. It's just like, okay, this is, this is what it's about. Like, this is what we train for. You know what I'm saying? And this man, I've been able to witness him really find incredible meaning in all of these challenges of his life. And if you're a member of the caravan, you can go and hear that part of the conversation. Um, it's only five bucks to sign up. BrotherAli.com slash join or BrotherAli.com and then just go to the join section and get in the caravan. You'll be able to hear all that. But it's been a profound journey and we've become really dear friends. He's one of a few people that started out being really intense kind of like listeners, fans, supporters. And the more that I talk with them, the more I realize like, yeah, the connection between us is real. And we've become real friends. Shout out to my man, Chris Jeffords in the Bay Area. He was the first guy like that, that that ever happened. And I mean, Chris went from somebody that, oh, again, was going through, uh, 
you know, he was he was getting sober and clean and stuff and used to write me letters and all of this stuff. And we just got closer and closer over the years to the point where, man, Chris Jeffers came to Soundset and stayed at my house. Like, it's real. Like, these things do happen sometimes. And I trust him because I was like that with Chuck D. And then me and Chuck D became friends. You know what I mean? And I know that sometimes you feel that real connection and it's deeper than just like in their music, but you you know that you're connected on a heart level. So that's what this is. So anyway, I'm talking to Dan about the podcast and he says, what's really dope about the podcast, about the Travelers podcast is that he's telling me, Ali, because you know these people in a way, you're able to talk to them in this way that they we don't hear them talk to people usually. So he's like, I've never heard Freeway sound like that before. He's like, I didn't know that Freeway's voice could even sound like that. I've never heard it before. But because you guys are so close and you're so, you know, chill, he's like, I never heard Slug talk like that. Never heard Ant. Nobody's ever heard Ant talk, you know, very rarely. So he said, he's like, as your fan and listener who became your friend, I would love the chance to ask you some questions uh, so that people can hear the way we talk. And I was like, yeah, man, I've, I think that's a great idea. So he put together some questions. We only got through a few of them. But what you're going to hear is me on the reverse side of where our guests usually are. Usually when I get off with people, you know, me and the grouch got done, or, the, you know, people be like, man, I don't, I, I said a lot of things there that I've never said before. You know, you asked me stuff that I was never asked before. And I opened up and talked about things from angles that I usually wouldn't unless somebody that you actually know is sitting there asking you the questions and, you know, you're able to connect with them on a certain level that that's uh, very special. So this episode is me talking about stuff in a way that I haven't talked about it publicly with my man Dan Chisholm. We're brought to you as always by Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T dot U-S on social media, Z-A-K-A-T dot org online. Uh, they're dope. They do great work all over the world. Can't necessarily change the whole world, but you can change somebody's world. If you give $5 to Zakat Foundation, they give somebody a hot meal. And I mean, it, that's that changes somebody's life. You've ever gone a long time. If you've ever gone a week without eating, if you've ever had to see your children not eat, and then suddenly somebody gives five bucks and now they now you have a meal. Now your kids have a meal. You change the world for that person. You know what I'm saying? If there's an earthquake somewhere and you know, you give 50 bucks, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, a hundred bucks, you know what I'm saying? And then that that goes towards uh, you know, building an orphanage or building a home for somebody, you change that person's world. So you might not be able to change the world, but in Zakat Foundation, they do real work. And I've seen it and I've experienced it. I've witnessed it. I've known people that are decision makers there. So I'm saying I this is this is as good a feeling as I've ever had about a charitable organization that does global work. So go to zakat.org, zakat.us. Just put something on something and know that you're changing somebody's world. And uh, enjoy this episode of Traveler's Podcast. So I'm curious to understand how your aspirations as an artist have evolved from your early years to the present day and how life experiences may have influenced this journey. Uh, as a young man, what were your intentions of becoming an artist and how has it changed over the years? 
Yeah, I mean, initially, I just loved the art so much and like what it did for me as a person. It came and told the truth about the things that mattered to me the most, both to me and in the world. And it told me the truth and it told the world the truth. And so I just loved that so much, you know what I mean? Like having those experiences of feeling ostracized and then really having life made sense for me by black elders and friends and peers and like that with that wisdom tradition and even in a broader sense like the religious tradition mm -hmm. and so i i didn't discover hip-hop and then be like oh man i think i i want to start hanging out with black people yeah. you know what i mean it was the other way it was like i was embraced by these families and friends and uh, even enemies, you know, even people, the people that didn't like me, like anybody who cared about me for better and for worse, it felt like they were all black until I met Brendan. He's <laughs> <laughs> the first person that was like in my life for the long haul that wasn't black. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, and so the music to me was like an encapsulation of all of that, that it just put it, it just summed it all up to me. And I felt also like the world could finally experience it. And so for me initially, like I just loved it so much that I, I wanted, my initial aspiration was like, I just want to be actually part of this. Like I also want to practice, just practice, just be a practitioner. And, you know, so that just started happening. That's something you just do. If you love it, you just do it. I think probably in my early 20s, I started feeling like, well, maybe I should actually try to do this as a, maybe I can actually put out music into the world. And it really was meeting Brendan and then meeting Rhyme Sayers and seeing like these guys are actually just, no one's giving them a record deal. Nobody's giving them permission. They're just making, these are just people that are dedicated that work together on this thing hours every single day. They're not expecting anything in return. They're just doing it for the pure love of it. And, you know, they, they're building as they're going, but it really was like meeting them that made me feel like, first I figured out, okay, I want to make an, a project. Like I actually want to, you know, put all of this stuff together in a way where I can just have an album for people to listen to. I want to dedicate myself to that. So for me, that was the Rites of Passage tape. I don't consider that my first album, but it was like, can I, like, I made that thing. And on the caravan, there's a oral history where I talk through that whole process. But I made that. I had to go to Houston to record it. Uh, my friend got beat up by the police and Keith Ellison sued the police department and won the money that that financed that project. Yeah, The artist that did the cover he just recently passed away but the artist that did the cover was like one of my muslim homies who when i've converted to islam his name is richard amos and he went by amin allah have mercy on him he was also a struggling addict that was that went to prison he became a drug counselor mm -hmm. and at one point i was like man maybe you could be, i've been thinking about that too yeah. But, <laughs> yeah yeah so that's what he did and so this brother when i was so i was 15 my homies were like this is the 90s and so my friends were like my friend ethan that got murdered um my friends were like going through some real stuff yeah um and so when i became muslim he was just coming home from prison and so he actually he was he was like maybe 23 or 25 and i'm 15 
So he actually went to my parents and were like, yo, he needs something to do on Friday night and Saturday night, and so do I. So I'm his mentor, but we're also going to keep each other right. And so he asked my parents' permission, and this is like, he went to prison for a long time. Uh-huh. So where I'm, where, where, where I'm from, if you go to prison for seven years or something, something serious happened. I don't want to say it, you know, where I'm but from we too. know what yeah. probably. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 like you, you've been inside. So like he went away for long enough that it wasn't, I don't think it was stolen property, right, I right. think something else. So anyway, this is a guy coming to my parents who, my parents are from Madison, Wisconsin, like middle class, Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Now we live in a hood. And this like grown black man that just got out of prison, Muslim, comes to them and like was like, "Hey, uh, I'm kind of his mentor. I'm kind of going to be his mentor." And my parents were like, "Yes, please," because they saw my friends going to jail. They saw violence. We heard gunshots, like the whole thing, and they knew that I was in that. I in was that like circle. around right. that. Or- yeah, so they were like, yes. And so he did it. Like every single weekend he came and picked me up. I mean, we went to all kind of Islamic events. We tried every type of Muslim food. We crashed, man, dude. We used to go to like Pakistani people's weddings, like anywhere there were Muslims. Like we weren't even invited. <laughs> like we were like wedding crashers, man. We did all, we had so much fun and we were broke. We were dirt broke. Uh, so we, like we would go there because we were like, man, they got, they got food. halal food. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, we're, yeah, we're Muslim. We're gonna show up there and eat. And like nobody even knew us, man. We had so much fun, man. And so he did the cover. He was an artist, and he made these um, African masks, like those those like African masks yeah. that you see. He made those, but he made them out of uh, blue jeans. Wow. And it was like a commentary on, you know, everything that America had done to black people. But like you just that that like original human genius and spirit, like you can't kill it. So he made jeans. Uh, he would cut them up and uh, put them on canvases and paint them into a mask. So that cover of Rites of Passage, he he did that. Um, Do you have another piece of his artwork? Because there was one reason I asked is because yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you did a live. Or I don't know if it was like, but it was yep. like 12 minutes long. It was a set in your house, I believe, during COVID. And I saw a piece that was yeah. really similar to the Rites of Passage um, artwork. Yeah, he made he made probably a hundred of those over over his lifetime. That that was like he did other types of stuff, but that was his main thing. And um, and yeah, even calling that album Rites of Passage, I just like people should go check out that that uh, oral history on the on the caravan. I agree. I, I've read it. But it just kind of had that like tie in to like you know um, coming into adulthood and coming into manhood and stuff. But yeah, so meeting Rhymesayers was like, okay, I can practice this in more than just standing in a cipher and being the man in a cipher. I can actually produce something and whether or not the world ever hears it is a different thing, but I actually produced the album. So I made that and then it just kept going. So then I brought that to to Sadiq from Rhymesayers. He was like, yeah, I'll put this out for you. And, you know, so I sold through those and then... Uh, basically sat with Ant and we made Shadows on the Sun and then we put that out independently. Then The Undisputed Truth came out, distributed by Warner Brothers, and that's when I was on TV. And that's when it was like, maybe I might become famous. And then me and the entertainment industry kind of mutually decided it wasn't a match. Um, 
And so, you know, and so it just kind of kept going and it keeps going. So now I'm like, man, can I just only have a life where I do exactly what I want? Like, can I pick up and move my family to Turkey and, you know, spend my days reciting the Quran and doing a a podcast and going to visit the the resting places of great saints and like, you know, can I, and then go to America and tour when I feel like it and then talk to Dan about Islam <laughs> for an right. hour a day. And can I just literally do whatever I want? Can I literally like, so now it's like, man, whatever I feel like my created purpose is in life, can I build my life where my family is cool and I'm just doing that, even though that's not going to make sense to anybody but me and Yasin Bey and Amir Suleiman? Right. <laughs> it's like there's three of us that understand what I'm doing. And like I said, you only need two yeah. friends. I, I, Amir gets it. Yasin gets You're it. Good. That's enough for right. me. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, and I think and flourish, right? You know, and still be able to flourish even uh, across the world. And I'm, yeah, you know that like this is the first time that I've ever had a year's yeah. salary in the yep. bank. And now I'm like, man, okay, so can I? I think I heard something about investing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. At the height of my career, at the like at what people would think of as the height of my career. So when I was on the main stage at Coachella. I didn't have that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like when you live like that, you have to spend so much money. You're flying all over the sure. place. I'm constantly, it, it costs so much to live like that, that at the end of it, you look up and you're like, man, how did I spend all this you money? You never have a home cooked meal. Like so much money went through my, yeah. dude. Never got to pay for every it's, meal and yeah, all of that. It's a lot. The high point of my career was the low point of my life, was one of the low points of my life. That's interesting. And then this, that would, where people would be like, dude, this guy moved to a developing country. You know, he stopped having the safety net of this big record label and that support and stuff like that. Not a big label, but in the underground, it's, it's, a, it's a well-established yeah. label. It would look like, man, this guy is failing. Sure. You know what I mean? But I am happier, more fulfilled, healthier. Yeah. Financially, I'm in a better position than I've ever been in. So it's it's ever evolving. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that I'm okay with it not making sense to anybody <laughs> else. I'm totally okay I'm, with that. I'm so happy with that. Like, I just don't need anybody to understand. No, I, yeah, I, I see it. I see that, I, that um, satisfaction, you know, and what it takes to move your family to another another country where you don't speak the language and uh, you know i know you had very you had ideas of what you wanted to accomplish while being there mostly but you know studying the quran and and all of that you know but also getting maybe i don't know that we ever talked about was there was there an aspect of it of getting away from america was that part of the decision absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i, I figured i just never actually asked the question yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, first of all, the the years leading up to that were very difficult years in, in a lot of ways. Um, and there was a lot of, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of disappointment, a lot of resentment, and just a lot of me feeling like I never have felt. So we talked about like, am I a victim? Am I a survivor? You know what I mean? Right. There was just a lot of me feeling like very... Um, I just had a lot of like hurt and disappointment 
and taken advantage of. I felt taken advantage of. Um, I didn't know if anybody meant to take advantage of me, but I, I, it, it was a very imbalanced situation that I was in across the board. Right. So yeah, a lot of it was personal. A lot of it was for my family. You know, I really wanted. It's it's very hard to be the type of religious family that we are in America, especially because me and my wife are both converts. It's not like I married a Somali lady or a Pakistani lady where, you know, there's going to be the whole family. Is. Yeah. Like, man, right. me and my wife are both converts. And so, you know, we don't have that built-in thing either. And it's one thing if it's like, well, we're going to go to the mosque. But like, no, we're trying to be a family where we only eat halal meat. The men and the women all dress, uh, you know, like like Orthodox Muslims. Um, you know, are the, the entertainment we consume, everything. Like, we're, we're pretty, like, Orthodox kind of religious family or we're trying to be. And doing that in America is our kids were always outsiders. Like it always feels like, yeah, my parents got this weird thing they're making us do. Whereas like coming to Turkey, half the society is is very religious and half are secular. But then also the other Westerners that live here, there's people that move to Saudi Arabia. There's people that move to different parts for because there's different kind of like feeling to how they do it. So for us, I mean, me and my wife are still hip hop heads, and like my my daughter like skateboards and collects records, and you know, as a in a religious family in Turkey, that makes total sense. Like the fact that like sure, you know, so my daughter dresses like a Muslim girl, like a Muslim lady. But it's sure. hip hop, skateboarder, punk rock style. <laughs> so right. like it's it's baggy clothes <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. But like you know what I mean. Like she, she's got her own flair. She's too. dope. Yeah, she's dope. And yeah, like she, right. And yeah. like man, you go to the mosques and like the the I can't wait for you to come. But like the big courtyards, there's Me big too. courtyards in these mosques where religious families go and hang out together. And so you see like girls that are even more families that are even more orthodox than us. So like their their like faces are covered. These girls skateboarding, riding bikes, they're loud, they're playing soccer, they're doing, you know, martial arts. They're like, man, you could just be a dope big like loud girl and be and woman and just be fully orthodox religious. There's nothing and then you can be you can have your culture too. Right. And it's yeah. weird that you got to like leave America to have both, but you know, for us it's been really dope. And then the littler ones, for my younger daughters, the way they are the the culture with women and the culture with children is really beautiful here where I don't feel that way in in a lot of Muslim countries. So my daughters to to my little daughters, Islam isn't some weird thing that their parents do. It's like Islam is this big, awesome, beautiful, fun, amazing, overwhelmingly positive thing that loves me. Like to them, yeah. they're like, Islam loves me. Everywhere I go, people pinch my cheeks and give me candy and pick me up. And like when they make announcements right. in public, they say, ladies and gentlemen and beloved children. Like those are the public announcements in Turkey. Yeah. Like. Uh, wherever you go, kids being loud, kids jumping all over, like these beautiful 500-year-old mosques. 
everyone that you go to, there's a kid climbing up a wall. There's other kids chasing them. <laughs> They're just, you gotta, you gotta just be like, man, I, I was like, are the kids and the women allowed to be loud? Like, are they allowed to like take up space and like be big? Can they be big in this, in this culture? Cause like it's, it's me and all these women. Like I got a wife and right. three daughters. You know three what I'm saying? That are right. here. Yeah, totally. So like, it's got to be good for women. It's got to be good for kids. Sure. And then also, they have to be people that understand that like music and culture can be part of the practice of Islam. And I mean, Saudi Arabia is not like that. There are countries that if you go there, they're just gonna like they're suspicious of culture. Whereas in Turkey, it's understood like the Ottoman Empire in a lot of ways is, is uh, built around, I mean, s songs and music and all of that stuff is deeply woven in to the building of civilization. It's understood what it means to be a civilization and to be a full human being and to still have your culture and how necessary it is. Not only like, so they don't allow music, they understand the necessity of music. Yeah. And now they might talk about within it, like it doesn't mean that all music is all good no matter what. Right. Like you got, there, there's gonna be always, yes, yeah, it's, it's such a powerful force that like we gotta really be aware of it um, sure. and practice it beautifully. And it's a major struggle to try to be sincere but they understand the necessity of culture. And so a lot of it was getting away from America. A lot of it was just getting out of, like a lot of my relationships because of my own neediness and my own issues had become really not sustainable. Right. Um, so a lot of it was just needing to reset my relationships and uh, so a lot of it was, you know, it was it was getting away from America. A lot of it was resetting my relationships. A lot of it was, you know, aspiration for how I want to live. A lot of it is like, what do I want for my family? It just kind of, it's a lot of things that all came together. And then also, it's, it's less expensive to live here. Like part of why right. we're doing so much, we're so much more financially healthy is that we're able to live in a place that number one, things are less expensive, but also there's just no competition here. There's no pressure here to dress a certain way, drive a certain car, have a certain phone. Like if I were to dress the way, like dude, when we left America and I packed up my house, I had two enormous wardrobes full of expensive clothes that like most of that stuff, if I wore it in, in my neighborhood, it would just look ridiculous. Like, who's he trying to impress? What is he, what is he doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who are you trying to impress? <laughs> it's embarrassing to think about, but like, okay, I got these like these like specifically designed Muhammad Ali uh, matching jacket sneakers thing, and I'm like, yeah, I wore them on TV and all that stuff. But I mean, each one of those outfits costs a thousand bucks. I had like all these tailor suits. Each one of them are fifteen hundred bucks. I got you know. Uh, I got ties that are worth more. It's just like, dude, what the hell was I doing? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you come to you come to Turkey, and it's like there's tailors here too. But I mean, a, a beautifully tailored outfit is I, I don't know fifty dollars, maybe a hundred. 
a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Wow. And that's you know, like man, yeah. Just even when even when shows weren't happening, and we were really struggling financially, I could still take my daughter to the mall. And I could buy her a new you know a new hoodie or something. Sure. I could we could go to the movies. We could go out to eat. We could take a cab there and back. And the whole night is 40 bucks. Yeah. Wow. So it's there, there was a lot of a lot of different things that came together that just made it really hard, but really perfect. So before you left America, then did you already know Turkey was this type of place that you've been that you just described? And if so, how? I don't think you've been there before, right? Or am I wrong? About I, no, I've been here. I've been here twice. So um so yeah, so I was in one one Muslim community from the time I was fifteen until my mid thirties. So it was like one community, and uh, Imam Worthy Muhammad, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's son, Allah have mercy on them both. Um, yeah, that was like my community, and that's a very insular community. Like we felt very satisfied with what we had and what we knew, and that was what it was. But then the imam passed away and I was traveling the world and I kind of hit like a spiritual low. And Amir Suleiman told me to go on Hajj. And so I did. And then I realized like I need to continue learning. But I was really intimidated by it, scared of it. I didn't want to betray like the mentorship and teaching that I had before that. And so I just kind of started poking around. So I went to the Bay twenty. 12 or 13 or 14, I can't remember which, but maybe 14. I I spent the summer in the Bay at Zaytuna College doing their uh, Arabic intensive program, like exploring whether or not I wanted to go to school there. And um, like as a full-time like student. And I, the school is in Berkeley, but I lived in a warehouse in Oakland with Amir Suleiman and other like Muslim artists, poets, students. It was so dope. That was an amazing experience. That's awesome. So then I came back and and those same people did so I did their like their Arabic intensive, but then they had like a full dean intensive, like a religious intensive where westerners all travel to a Muslim environment and they study intensely for a month. Like you go for a month and you eat, sleep, they just bombard you with the basics of the religion and you take away as much as you can, but it's more so that like you, you really get an understanding for what the religion has to offer. So then you can go back and start studying at your own pace and your own environment and stuff. So my wife did that. So I, we basically kind of traded off. So I came back from the Bay doing their Arabic program and then she came here to oh. Konya where Rumi is. And um, so she came here for a month. And when she came back, she was like, someday we're going to live in Istanbul. Wow. And I was like, okay, dope. And then not long after that, I had, a co I had a couple of friends that moved here. And so whenever we were in Europe, like doing a tour, I would come here and visit them and just stay for a few days. And I just, I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the, the lifestyle. People that visit here have no idea how hard it is to move here and how difficult it is every day. Every day, it's difficult. There's like a little challenge all the time. Like any one of them sounds silly, but like every almost everything is more difficult than it needs to be. Right. 
and it just wears at you. So it is, it is, there are definite challenges living here. Part of it's just the language, but sure. some of it's just cultural. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't a capitalist society. They don't have a best so buy, like, you know. <laughs> no, yeah. but then also just culturally, it's like, it's like, okay, um, I'm, you know, I'm paying the electrician to like come here and do something, you know, like the idea of somebody just showing up on time and doing what they say they're going to do and charging the price they say they're going to charge. And like, is just, it, nothing ever happens like in that. a way that in the West feels, no. Transition, You're just, nothing's efficient. Right. Or strictly it, transactional. There's nothing efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And then you start realizing that like efficiency is based on a lot of it is there's something unhealthy is happening yeah for me to have so like just to be able to walk into a store so i, I like i haven't had a i've never had a, re, a good avocado in this country and my wife is puerto rican so that's a big deal for us <laughs> yeah you know what totally. i'm saying like for a puerto rican to not get an avocado for a long time is a problem <laughs> So like, <laughs> seriously, man, like it's, it genuinely is like, I, there's times she probably, her therapist probably knows that she hasn't had a good, had a good avocado in three <laughs> years. So yeah. So like coming here, you don't know how challenging it's going to be. So we visited a few times and then during the pandemic, it was just like, I mean, yeah, it just seemed like, okay. This is the time to do it. I've always wanted to live in a Muslim country. I've always wanted to have that experience of just hearing the call for prayer, being able to walk out of your house and go to the mosque and go to funerals. And I mean, you know, death is such a present part of life here in a really beautiful way that's so healing and necessary. Um, you know, going to the going to the Turkish bath and like. You know, it sounds weird to people who have never experienced it, but something about men <laughs> massaging the each other, and <laughs> yeah. steam, you know, and, and, and being like, manly, yeah, you're there not, with your neighbors. Yeah, totally. And it's the brotherhood yeah. or camaraderie, yeah. you know. I can understand that. And it's just like, man, yeah, and it's like I'm a man with a body and you're a man with a body. And, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so like, yeah, and then like you go and um, so like my barber, for example, I go to the barber and they shave you, and this is like a very manly man, sure. um, that like shaves you and gives you a like does like a full skin treatment, like mask, facial, um, you know, all that stuff, and then massage, and then I've known this guy now for three years, and. I remember when I, I remember when his dad died and then he had a baby and his son just recently passed. And so wow. like man, this is my barber. Yeah. He knows barely he he knows just enough English, but dude like I love this man. And I went to his son's funeral and they left the mosque to go to across the street to the morgue and his brother grabbed my hand and was like, "Come on, you're coming to the morgue with us." I watched my friend carry his son's body his baby son's body. Oh my gosh. And then I sat there with him and his wife cuz I'm saying like the the boy just, like when you die they bury you the next day. The yeah. next afternoon. If you die that morning they bury you that afternoon. Wow. If you die in the evening you get buried the next afternoon. Like Asr prayer the late afternoon prayer that's when you get buried. So like 
I was there with him and his wife and the news of their son dying is brand new. They were with this boy in the hospital. And then the whole community around the barbershop were all like, yo, how's Emra's son? And like, I literally heard about this boy and like what they were going through and like, you know, and she's pregnant with another baby. Like she's going to give birth to her next baby any day now. And so I'm like with him and with his wife and they're newly grieving. Wow. And I, I, I watched them wash their son's body and carry it to, and I saw them put him in the, you know, it's like, man, that's an experience you don't get. In America. And, um, yeah, like in America, like we pretend people now, we used to embalm people and put a bunch of makeup on them, and now we just burn them. That's right. Yep. And I mean, both of them feel very escapist to me. But there's something about and, and 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 even as a Muslim, like I've washed my friends' bodies, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Buckshot Shorty talks well, Black Buckshot, yeah. uh, from Black Moon, sure. talks about the fact that him and and the the brothers, like their whole crew, is Muslim. When Sean P died, they washed Sean P's body. It's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like like Rock and and Tech and, and Steel and Buckshot, they washed Sean Price's body. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I'm fully like, man, Amir is gonna wash me, or I'm gonna wash him. I'm Yassine asking you Bay right is now. Gonna wash you know, me, or I'm gonna wash when him. It's my time. I, I pray and I hope you you would do that for me. You know, <laughs> if we got news about you, I would be on a plane. Yeah, man. If Thank we got news so about you, I'm on a plane. Yeah, so I will wash you and I will wrap you and I will bury you myself. I would rather have you bury me. But I'd rather have you bury me. So Alhamdulillah, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think, um, and so uh, some of these aren't quite in order, but just as we're talking. So is there anything specifically that you miss in America now that you've been there for two, three years, three years? Yeah. I mean, there's like the, the you know, stuff like avocados, you know, I, I miss having good, like reliable internet. No, I mean, um, I mean more like... like um, yeah, you know I mean, yeah. I'm I mostly I miss, I miss, I miss culture. I miss our culture in in the sense of like when I'm in America and I'm, um, I miss black people and culture in big groups. Sure, you know what I'm saying. Like I have my friends here, you know, I have my family, and like that's great. But like, there's something about like just being in a neighborhood being so like I went to Philly and I went to the barber shop and I was like with Freeway and I you know was went to the mosque and was with Tone Trump like that conversation with me and Tone Trump like we didn't know each other super well but like those are the types of friendship like we became brothers in that conversation I heard it and those are the <laughs> yeah those are the conversations and usually it's not always just one on one it'll be like a room full of people men and women and elders and like you know that's those are the environments that really made me who I am I miss that and I miss sh I miss sharing Islam with people and those are major parts of my life that like I really miss like I miss I miss like what I when I say our people it's like you know people have accused me of lying and saying oh, but I understand that I'm saying things the way I understand them sure I miss our people and I miss sharing Islam with people. So like you came to Jamali Project, you know, I that's do. what I miss. Yeah, me too. I miss like that. I miss being in a room full of like 
I miss being in a room full of our people and what that is. I love going to the mosque here. I love, and I do have friends here that are, that it's like that, but it's not the, it's not the same. So if, if I come back, that'll be why. Yeah. No, I have to say, uh, going to the Jamali project, I, and I, and I told you this before, but it felt like home, you know, it felt like I was supposed to be there, you know, and, um, everybody kind of, having their own rhythm in the chant and what, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. And it feels very belonging, you know, that's a, that's a vision of what America could be that I don't think that like people who haven't experienced that there's not really a way to describe it to them. You know what I mean? I pray we do become that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying like, so like you, that was one of your first Muslim gatherings. You had been Muslim for a while, but like our homie Vince became Muslim that day. And Vince is, you know, uh, he's a tattoo artist. Yep. Head to toe. Which just on its own. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like, yeah, and, and, you know what I'm saying? And like, tattoos are, are haram in Islam. We all know that. Right. He knows that. You know what I'm saying? It's like that, but dude, but he's a sincere person and a, and he's from rural Wisconsin. And so it's like you and Vince in a room full of like African and black yeah. Muslims and a couple other white converts. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like the Somali sister greeted you the way she greeted you. Yeah. And she gave Vince a name. I don't know if he uses it or not. Really? But she, like this, yeah. Oh, I didn't And know. so, okay, so her her grandfather is a sheikh in the same tariqa that we're in. Like Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, they, there's a lot of the people that are in that same order in Somalia. So her grandfather was in part of the same like spiritual order as us and Sheikh Jelani, who's in the Gambia in wow. West Africa. Wow. Yeah, so she, and I knew her from the activism organizing world. And so she came to that and we did that weird and she was crying and she was like, this is what my grandfather used to do. Oh, wow. And so, so her being there and then, you know, there's guys, like I'm sure you could tell, there's guys sitting on that carpet that, like I said, they, they didn't get there from somebody being giving them a altruistic. pamphlet. No kidding. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> no, man. They got there from living some very real life. Absolutely. You know? And um, and I mean, just the the vulnerability and love and like real humanity. Um, you know, I know Resma doesn't necessarily see it this way with Islam, but when Resma talks about like embodied, somatic, abolitionist, rehumanizing. Um, you know, I, I believe that what he's describing is what I've experienced in Islam. And it is very, it is, it has a lot to do with the body. It has a lot to do with, um, just something about the fact that like, yeah, those, those people in that room are all going to bury each other. Their kids are going to marry each other. Some of them have been married to the, oh, I already know. One of the main brothers, yeah, one of the main brothers that was talking and yeah. I still talk to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know they lost their son. I do. Yeah, he told me. Yeah. Yeah, they lost their son. And then the sister that was there, like, I'm saying, like, they were going through the, like, so there's a couple there that have been married 20 years or something going through the process of a divorce, and they're in a community crying and singing and, like... Totally. Together. And we're all in in this room together. Yeah. And I'm saying, and, and... they're talking about the racism they experienced 
And even in the Muslim community, like some of uh, the black people when they first became Muslim, going and, and like the racism they experienced. And then some of the like Africans, uh, like there's a conversation between Africans and African-Americans going on. And then there's these two white guys that are, be, yeah. that are like entering <laughs> Islam and then being right. like, welcome. We hope you have welcome. a better experience than us. Right. And it, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's, it's something that if you heard about it, it would sound corny. It would sound whatever. And I totally get it because it's like, unless you've experienced it, it's like trying to experience, it's trying to trying to explain being in love to somebody. It's so funny because it sounds never, so, it, it does not sound corny to me at all. It's like, this is a healing, beautiful, you know, thing. But it's because, like you said, I've experienced yeah. it, you know, so. You lived it. There's a brother, Man, sisterhood. I used to, when, when, I was a, when, I was in my, when I was in my first marriage, I used to listen to love songs and be like, this is corny. Yeah. Okay. Because I had never been, been overtaken love. with love before, yeah. and then I met my my current wife, and I, now they all make so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like now I understand. Now any I'm I'm talking about like man the the corniest pop song, you know what yeah. I'm saying? I just be like, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So this conversation is really dope. It's really unique. It's really special. The first part of it is on the caravan. And the caravan is just a name that we've given to something that started 20-some years ago when we started touring, performing, selling CDs, selling T-shirts, selling cassette tapes. First thing I ever saw was a cassette tape. And you can actually hear the oral history of that on the caravan. Uh, so if you go to brotherali.com in the join section or just brotherali.com slash join, you get down with the caravan and at all levels would start at $5 a month. You know, you become part of this community and you get immediate access to all of this rare, exclusive, hard to find. There's no place you find all of this stuff together, but it's just, like I said, the oral history of my demo tape. You hear the story of how Keith Ellison helped one of my friends sue the police department who got beat up and undo, unjustly charged. Keith Ellison won him a settlement. That settlement led to me making my first demo tape. That's the money that got invested for making my demo tape. You hear about me meeting rhyme sayers and all of the stuff that I had to go through to produce my first demo tape, Rites of Passage. You can also hear Rites of Passage. You can also hear the mixtapes that I've done. Uh, you can hear all type of rare, exclusive podcast stuff. And we just launched something that we call The Vault, which is a collection of rare and exclusive freestyles, blog stuff, original versions of things, uh, demos, like really dope demo songs that never made it to the studio, never made it to albums. And I go back and listen to them. BK1 had a bunch of them on his computer. I go back and listen. I'm like, dude, this is ill. Like, why didn't this song come out? And I think at the time, who knows? Who remembers why? But now these things have a home. And there's videos, there's live performances, there's lectures, there's all type of stuff. There's a super embarrassing collection of radio advertisements I did for like urban fashion in the early 2000s before my albums ever came out. All kind of wild stuff. So go to brotherali.com in the join section. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the 
mailing list. You can go to the event section and see the tour that I got coming up with Grouch and Living Legends. Uh, I got New Year's shows with Grouch and Eli. Um, doing a thing called the Rise Up concert series in Florida with Atmosphere, Saw Rock, RJD2. That's going to be dope. All of the tickets are up there. All the links for everything is up there. You go to the merch section, uh, or maybe it's called offerings, I think, because we just didn't want to call it merch, but you can see all of the shirts. And we got Uncle Sam goddamn 15-year anniversary stuff up there, this ill hand style, like black coach jacket that says, welcome to the United Snakes, land of the thief, home of the slave. Super dope. Uh, we got the Brother Minister stuff up there. There's vinyl, there's cassettes. There's stuff that you can only get there. That Brother Minister stuff that Uncle Sam got, you can only get that stuff on BrotherAli.com. So all our vinyl is there and all that good stuff. So just go to BrotherAli.com, kick it there, join the caravan, and we appreciate you being part of this movement with us. I'd love to hear about your personal connection to the creative work and whether certain projects or songs carry a deeper significance in your artistic journey. Uh, do you have any favorite project you have made or a favorite song verse that holds special meaning to you? Man, I've had to, I've really learned to just kind of let them go and just realize that I have an experience with them when I'm making them. I have an experience, a relationship with the people I'm making them with. And that's a really beautiful record of what happened in that moment. And then I have a different relationship with them after they're out. And I, some of them, especially because I perform them. Mm -hmm. And then people have their own relationships of hearing them. And a lot of people, the song means something different to them than it meant to me. And I've just learned that all of it, you know, any good in any of it is from Allah. And, uh, you know, any harm that's done or any, you know, that I just pray we can heal and be forgiven for that. Um but I, I, you kind of just got to let them go. It's one of the things that I've learned. So there's times where I listen to, like, I don't actively listen to my music, sure. but there's times where, especially if, if I feel like a certain project was, like, not really received well, I'll go back and listen to it and be like, man, people are tripping. This is dope. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and then the ones that people are like, oh, that's my favorite one, I'll go back and listen to that and be like... Man, what are you talking about? I didn't even know how to do this yet. You know what I mean? Right. So like whatever, I don't know. It's it's so subjective and it's so, but it's also, it's true in whatever moment and whatever relationship people are having. And so. Well, I think you probably, people experience it or discover it in certain times of their life or certain things they're going through in their life. And so there's. Yeah, and and you've gone through a gambit of things, so you have you have a say in your in your music on a lot of different things, um, but yeah, I think it depends on when are you introduced to this music. You know, I was young, uh, I was fifteen. You know, um, and yeah, I think it means different things to different people, and they interpret it different depending on what they're going through. You know. And I just don't think that, like, as artists, I don't think any good comes out of trying to own it, trying to dictate to other people how they should understand it, even thinking about it too much. It's one of the things I've learned. Like, I've and I've asked many people, especially in the podcast, people that are great and that are around great people, like, what is the thing that you see about them? So, like, I think, like, Stokely is great. 
mm-hmm. from Mint Condition yeah, and yeah. Stokely knew Prince. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what is the thing that makes people great? What's made you great? What made Prince great? And it's like, you just always keep going. You just keep moving. You just like, you try to be present in this moment now. Right. When I went and spent that that time with Dave Chappelle right before moving here, that was a big part of moving here too. Um, mm. And just this kind of me having the the confidence to, to, to take this chapter in my life. Yeah. I'll, so much of it came from a week that I spent with and around Dave Chappelle. It was just a week, but like... That was a major, major thing in my life. That was a very validating, inspirational period. And I, it was that for a lot of people. When people talk about uh, Chappelle summer camp right? Like uh, in 2020, that was a major, major turning point for a lot of people. Um, and that, for everybody that was around it, you know? Yeah. And, um, it's, and it's one of the things I learned from him. It's one of the things I learned from, you know, so many people in that situation to just be present in this moment and to keep going. The first day I got there, his DJ, DJ Trauma, uh, Chappelle called me up on stage. I didn't know he was going to do that. And so DJ Trauma just went on Spotify and grabbed the first song, which was Forrest Whitaker, and was going to play that, and I was I was supposed to perform along with it. And I was like, no, this is the, I don't want to do that right now. So I was like, just play a bunch of Wu-Tang and Nas beats, switch them up every 12, 16 bars, and I'm just going to go off the head. I'll do some verses and like weave it all together. Uh-huh. And it was one of my favorite performances ever, the first night that I was there. And Dave was like, yeah, the stuff that people like us for the most isn't always our favorite stuff. And I was like, yeah. So when I left, he said, I want you to make me a playlist and I want you to, of your songs, like if, if I want to tell my friends about Brother Ali and show them why he's so dope. So like when DMX is here next week, I want to tell DMX there's this guy, Brother Ali, and he's ill. Yeah. And I was like, how do you know I don't know DMX already? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but he was like, well, I want you to make me a playlist of all your songs, and I want you to name it The Secret Legend of Brother Ali. And so I made a playlist <laughs> called The Secret Legend of Brother Ali. Wow. And yeah, and the songs that I put on that one for Dave to play for people are not the ones that, like, if I were to do that as a playlist at a concert, the audience would not have a good time. Where's Forrest Whitaker at? Yeah. And I think Forrest Whitaker's in there, but it's like there, there's a bunch of other stuff in there that if I do them at shows, people are kind of looking at me like, all right, uh, get back to <laughs> get back to what we want. Right. Making the decision to go independent, I know that was probably a really hard one for you. Um you know, and as listeners, we've always known you to be uh, a part of Rhyme Sayers, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's obvious there's still love there between you. I witnessed it, you know, coming to see you in Denver. Uh, you know, Ant came just to see you, not for nothing else, you know, because you you guys are true yeah. brothers, you know. And He, he uh, got COVID that day, too. <laughs> oh, he did? I didn't know. <laughs> I just remember, like, fanboying yeah. on, on, out on as soon as I saw him. <laughs> You have to call me down oh, and be like, yeah, all right, right, you get one minute to freak out and then we need to get back to normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, because we did that. That was the first tour after the pandemic. And um, yeah, and so you came to the show and Amir Suleiman was there and Ant was there, both unexpectedly. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was dope. Yeah, that was super dope. Yeah, so as far as that, it's, uh, so it's obvious there is love between you, but was there uh, like a final thing or what was it? that made you decide to go completely independent and create your own platform? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, man. Like, like um, that's a really, that's a a platform that evolved very organically. Yeah, like Rhyme Series really evolved organically. And so, you know, when you're when you're doing something like that and you're just building it one brick at a time, you're it's really just people doing the next, just putting one foot in front of the other. And so um at the beginning, it was extremely I mean, it's the thing that that helped me become who I am. Right. Um over time. What I started realizing is that Rhyme Series is many things. It's a it's a musical legacy, it's a friendship family thing, but then it's also a business thing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that people one of the mis- people there, there's misconceptions about the business part, and the misconception about the business part is that the artists are controlling the label, and that's not actually true. Um, and you know, and, and like. We didn't even necessarily define that. You know what I mean? We knew that we were all doing this thing together, but like I never had contracts, so I never negotiated. I never, um, you know. Yeah. Like it, it was a lot of things were just not explicit. Unsaid. And so it's it's just really like how is this op, how is this functioning? That's what on the business side. How is this working? Is it working? Does it feel good? Or is it not working and doesn't feel good? And if it's not working and doesn't feel good, can some can it be changed? Right. And so for a long time, it worked great. It's like that's why I, you know, that's why I got the opportunity to do all of this. Um, and yeah, like musically, all that music is true and real, and the love between everybody is true and real. And business-wise, in the beginning, I think it was great. I wouldn't have chosen any other way to come into things and. You know, and there there was a lot of. I think there's nothing but good intent. I think there's a lot of beauty there. I think there's a a lot of generosity on everybody's part. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody that gets up and goes into that office, and all the artists that do their thing, and all the sound engineers, and everybody. Like everybody's doing that. It's a labor of love for all of them, and they all everybody involved is sacrificing a lot to do something that they believe in, and they want to do good for each other. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, like I, I, I kind of like realized operationally that I didn't own any of that label. Like I wasn't an owner of the label. Mm-hmm. I didn't have profit sharing from anything in the label. Um, I kind of learned over time that I, I didn't really have a vote in the la- in like what the label did or didn't do. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I didn't really have any control or any kind of like, I could voice my opinions, <clears throat> but I didn't have a vote in how things went at the label. And that's a big misconception that people have. People think that like the artists are running the label and we're not. Right. Um, you know, as from a listener's perspective and somebody that has been a fan of Rhyme Sayers since I can remember, I mean, I would say since like 2001 or 2000 is when I first heard Atmosphere. Um I always thought it was a crew. Like that was the first like idea was this isn't necessarily a label. It's just a crew of, you know, like-minded people trying to make independent music, you know, and that's, that's what I thought it was. And, and, and and, well, that's, that is what it was. Right. And, and what I'm saying is that in a way that's still what it is. Sure. 
and I'm still in that crew. Yeah, <laughs> you right. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like, you, there's no leaving that. It's like, a, you know what I mean? The, like, that, that is what it was. And I'm saying, like, you know, me and Slug and Ant and Musab and, you know, the core people in that thing, we will always be a crew. Right. We will always, like, be connected. We'll always be that. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, that's one of the things that Rhyme Sayers will always be, is, like, a crew of people that make music. But like most things that I've seen in America, like, you know, uh, you know, so for example, okay, uh, Rhyme Sayers opened a record store in mm -hmm. 99 or 2000 called Fifth Element. In the beginning, it was big stacks of records. Uh, me and Sadiq and, Mus and Slug and, uh, and uh, DJ Abilities and Slug's brother Jordan and Felipe from Los Nativos we were the ones that worked at the register and it was like big dusty stacks of records and people would come in and, and hang out and like we would all just come in there and hang out for hours at a time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Over time, like I, what I've just seen happen with so many institutions and businesses is that there's this idea that like, well, if we don't, if we don't grow, then we're going to go under. And I can't say that that's not true, but it's like, but then that growth always turns, I, I, the way that I've always seen it happen, it turns it into something that's not, as as a business, that's not what it used to be. Right. So at, at, at some point, Fifth Element became a boutique. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is because people weren't buying vinyl and CDs weren't a thing anymore. Right. So I'm not blaming anybody for that, but it's like, it became a boutique store where you would go to buy your sound set tickets. Um, you would buy T-shirts, you would buy collectibles, like MF Doom collectibles. Yeah. And it reminded me of something. And I'm saying, DJ, none of the artists work there anymore. We didn't even want to hang out there anymore. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like for this thing to stay afloat because it's being, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of the business side of it because I wasn't running the office. And neither was Slug and neither was Felipe and neither was... Musa, no like, we didn't yeah. run that part of it. Right. Yeah, Plain Old Bill worked yeah. there for a long time. And so like the the people that are taking care of the business side of things, they got a whole set of challenges that I don't fully understand. You know what I'm saying? And But what I do know is that they dedicated years of their lives and time away from their families the same way that I did to go on the road. So I, I, I know that their intentions are good and they were never going to get rich doing it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's like, they loved it. So, yeah. And I'm saying, to me, Soundset was the same way. In the beginning, Soundset was like the people that the the organizers of it could text or call on their cell phone. So it was Little Brother and Dilated Peoples and LP and Aesop Rock. And like, uh, it was that in the beginning. Yeah. And then, and then it, it started to grow. And then there was a period where like, you know, it would be like, everybody's families, it was almost like a holiday. Everybody's family was there. There was bouncy castles, like your kids were there. Kids are playing backstage. And then like, oh, but Snoop Dogg's also here. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then there was that phase of it. Whereas like everybody that like everybody that's part of that community, they're seven-year-olds. There's pictures of their kids at seven years old chilling with Snoop. <laughs> and Snoop is like, damn, little homie. Like he's just, I mean, Snoop is the coolest guy ever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, So right. then, then it was that. But then it got to a point where atmosphere is not headlining anymore. Uh, 
um, now atmosphere is is kind of on a different Second stage. stage. Yeah. And again, I don't know all the ins and outs of like fest. The festival game is a cutthroat, crazy thing. So they probably felt like in, either we're going to go under or we got to compete with Coachella and Rolling Loud and so and so. So like atmosphere, we got to grow. So we're going to put atmosphere on their own stage. So now atmosphere, Brother Ali, um, uh, you know, Black uh, Star, uh, I think was on that Black stage. Black Star, yeah, yeah. Like now, that's now that's a separate stage right. and the big stage. You got I, Lil like, Wayne, atmosphere. Yeah, me and Atmosphere aren't even on a big stage anymore. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, right? And at that point, it started being like, I remember the year that our our wives, like several of our wives, were just like, I'm not going to go this year. Hmm. It just was like, damn, this isn't what it used to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the way I started feeling in the label where like not only did so I didn't have a say in any of the stuff that other than my own music. And what the one of the main things too is that they always supported me to say whatever I wanted to say, whether they necessarily agreed or not. I always was was had the full support of like, man, say what you need to say. Yeah. Um, that's a good thing. You know, once one time they came at me when I was, you know, I go through this problem with airport security, and they came at me and were like, "Yeah, who uh, who bought this flight?" And Jaybird, who runs the touring department at Rhymesayers, he went online and bought the flight. But I'm like, that's public information, but I'm not just going to tell you that. I don't say other people's names because yeah. the minute I say somebody's name, they become they're they're, they're allowed to be part of your investigation. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I'm like, totally. I don't say people's names. The next time Jay Bird and his family went on vacation, he got 4S, he got pulled out of line, he got searched, he got all that stuff. Wow. That all happened because Brother Ali went to Iran and did Uncle Sam Goddamn and the, mm-hmm. all of that. So I'm saying like, you know, so they did support me in my own space. I could do what I, like I could say what I wanted to say. But as a as a label, I didn't have a vote. I didn't have say anything. And then I got to a point where the business model wasn't working for me anymore. Like it wasn't, it just wasn't working. You know what I'm saying? And what I realized is that in order for it to look like and just be what I needed, I was the only artist that would need that. Like there's no other, like the idea that like I want to do a podcast and I want to write and I want to teach Islam and I want to... do you know what I'm saying? But on beats wanna, and and uh, master ceremony, those classes. Yeah, like I like the yeah. So they're not set up for that, and maybe it wouldn't even be. I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else, but maybe it wouldn't even be responsible for them to like build all these new apparatuses and stuff around the stuff that I wanted to do. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but. I will say that I'd kind of discovered over time, the feeling that I started to have is like, man, I thought this was mine too. Yeah. And I realized that it was mine to, I could, like I said, I could say what I wanted to say, but I didn't have power within it to shape it to what I needed. And that part did, that part hurt. You know what I mean? That part hurt. And financially it wasn't working. Um, you know, just just the way that it was set up just didn't feel like it was working for me. And I really, I I, I went, I spent a couple years like going in and being like, can we reshape this thing? 
And I kind of had to discover that like, no, this thing is not going to be reshaped for me. Right. And me and Chris Calico talked about it because he had a similar thing with Tech 9 where it's just like, we, it hurts because we love each other so much. It hurts because I'm not accusing you of being bad. Right. It hurts because I know you would never harm me, but this situation is harming me. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this situation, again, like it I could... just was, the, the, way, the way it was all set up, I never, got to, I never got to negotiate. And now that I'm on my own and like I can negotiate, I realize what I missed out on all those years. Right. I never negotiated. Yeah. And we never had a contract. I know like that's a very powerful thing. Now there's something called a 360 deal where a record label is your merch, your management, your touring, your everything. And now that that's a thing that exists, people can look at it and see the flaws of what it is. And that was, you know what I mean? was that what created at Rhino Sayers or was that always there? A 360 deal? No. I, I Well, yeah, it, it became that, but we didn't have a name for it. Gotcha. So in the beginning, it's just like, we're not part of the music industry. We live in Minnesota. People, there, nobody, you know. And so the people that built the business side of Rhyme Sayers were people who were like, okay, we're going to stop making beats and rapping and break dancing and, trying to, and being on stage, and we're going to dedicate ourselves to the business side of this. And we're and whatever these guys need, we're just going to figure out how to do. So it became that in a really um, I think way. natural and organic like they were serving. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're like uh the the Ali needs management. Ali needs artwork, um, uh, you know. Or yeah, whatever. Ali yeah. needs yeah. Every everything, right. everything, yeah. and so they're like, okay, we're gonna try to figure out how to do as much of what these artists need as possible, but and so while you're building it, you don't have the outside perspective, you know. Like Rumi says, the eye sees everything, but the eye can't see itself. You know what I'm saying? So like, you now we know that there's such a thing as a 360 deal, and what the downfalls of that are, and like what the what the uh, because there's conflicts of interest there's all kind of stuff where like you know yeah but we didn't know that at the time and at at the time that I started to realize this isn't working for me like that whole thing can't be restructured just for me right but those last several years um I was living show to show you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, Even exactly. doing those enormous shows, like, man, and I, I mean, it was bad for my health. It was bad for my family. It was bad for my voice. It was bad for, I mean, financially. And I was never going to get out of it. I've, I, right. I, I felt trapped by the situation, not by the people, but by the situation, I was like, man, and I, I didn't have the power to change it. And there's a, a interview where LP is talking to... Um, open Mike Eagle. And, and Mike Eagle is asking him, like, what does it mean in this day and time to be independent? And LP gives this answer. And I, I had already, I was already living here and I was already, but so this is me hearing it after the, the fact, but he's like, do you feel good about the environment around your creative work? Do you feel good about the people you're working with? Do you feel good about, and if you don't feel good about something, do you have the power to change it? Because if you don't, you're not independent. 
if you can change the things you don't like or that aren't working for you, you're, if you can change it, then you're independent if you can't change it. So like things were bad for me that I didn't have the power to change. Right. And I saw that like, they're not going to make these changes just for me. You know what I mean? And so it was like, it was a full, like, it was like a, it was kind of like a divorce on the business level. Sure. I was like, I'm not just walking away from this. So I went in there every week for over a year. Every single week I went in there and I imagined and cried and yelled and I tried everything. I tried the full <laughs> yeah. range of emotions. I tried everything that I could think of. And then at some point I just realized like, man, this isn't mine. As much as the business part of it is right. like, this isn't mine. And so, and, and if I want something different, make then your the, own. maybe the Maybe the best and last lesson that I learned that I learned from these amazing human beings is to do what they did. You know what I'm saying? So like if if somebody is, you know, uh, if somebody is your teacher in archery, uh, you know, you get to a point where you go out on your own. Like that's the sure. ultimate you know Goal, what I'm saying? Really? Like Goal. if some Yeah, like yeah. yeah. So like I learned so much like, dude, me and BK1 learned so much just from being on a tour that Jaybird managed, the first two tours. We did two tours with Jaybird. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we went out on another tour with Vast Air and Immortal Technique. Uh, we just talked about it recently. And uh, Jizza was on part of that tour. Oh, yeah. And we hired a person to be our tour manager, and we got about a week or two in, and I was like, we can manage a tour better than this guy is managing a tour. And so right. we changed. We were like, "You're the merch guy now. Me and Brendan are going <laughs> to manage. Me and BK are going to just manage this tour." And that's just from being around Jaybird. He never taught us. He never was. A, but it's like I know what this is supposed to look like. Right. And this you know isn't it. Yeah. 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 And, and but like me and Brendan can do this. Me and BK can do this. So we ended up taking over the management of that whole tour. Wow. And it was great. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so it became a similar thing where I'm like, man. I've learned so much from being in this situation. And it, I grieved it, man. I grieved it like a breakup. I can imagine. You know I, I mean, I, I can imagine. It, it seems like a brotherhood. That's what it feels like to me. So I can imagine. And then eventually what I realized, so like, you know, there, there was like we, I just have a lifetime of memories of these amazing nights. Mm -hmm. This is the part that like really hurts because it's like, but it's okay because like we we can have them again. It's not that we can't have those again, but I just remember you know these days at First Avenue and days at Red Rocks and you know sure. where just like you know one of the younger artists you know goes on stage and they're they're really good, and then uh, you know and then I play right before Atmosphere and I come out before Atmosphere and it's full church. Yeah. It's right. like something very, and then just <laughs> watching Atmosphere get on stage, and I'm standing there like, I love these guys so much. And seeing them do two hours of dope songs that nobody even knew they wanted. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They're some of the yeah. most unique people ever. And I know how real it is. I know how dedicated they are. I know how generous they are. You know what I'm saying? 
having those moments under that banner of like what that meant musically and personally, you know what I'm saying? And so when I left, I was like, just like, we might not have these nights again if I leave. Yeah, right. That's the part that hurt. That's like, man. I bet. This might not, this might, that thing that we've done so many times might never happen again. And it hasn't happened since. You know, it doesn't mean it can't, but like, you know, I, and, and I'm in a place where like I have to establish myself. Yeah. So I, I kind of can't go back there and do the old thing. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's like, uh, Aunt told me one time, you know, cause me and Aunt have both been through divorces mm-hmm. and he was like, man, I respect the fact that you sat the wife and kids down and said, daddy's leaving. He said, you didn't just try to move into the basement. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He said, you didn't try to move into the basement, man. You sat everybody down. You told them what's what. You said, I still love everybody. And then you 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 went on and did your thing. And so, yeah, man, for me to come... And then the first time to go on tour after that, and Ant came to the shows. Like, yeah. Ant traveled, like you said, yeah, I know. to be there. And then Slug, a couple nights later, came to the Madison show and went on stage with me on the podcast. Right. You know... It's, and the day I, I like, I remember the day that I had the conversation. It was Ant and Slug, and uh, you know the the you know the 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 folks that are actually run the label side of things. Ant and Slug do not run the label. They don't. They don't. Uh, they contribute. They you know what I'm saying. And yeah, they do. They yeah. are part owners. But they're almost kind of like I don't know if silent, silent partners partner. is the way to say it. Uh-huh. Like they they have a voice. I, maybe they have a vote. I don't know. But they have a voice. I didn't have a voice or a vote or anything. Yeah. I didn't own anything. I never saw a dollar from Soundset, from Rhymesayers merch. I never saw a dollar that wasn't from Brother Ali di- directly related stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's true. I never, you know, it's, I just, you know. You were an artist and, on and the label as far as paperwork. That's That's what it became. I don't, like in the beginning, you know what I'm saying? In the beginning, I don't think feel like it was that but it's none of it was ever on paper i've never seen a you know so it's just feeling and so the feeling got to be like oh i don't i thought this was mine but it's not and that that part hurt i bet um but it's also like man these people were doing this for five years before i even got here mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying when i like they weren't fully rhyme sayers yet they were still and in, in in the early days it was called Rhyme Sayers Collective. Like when you said you had that feeling, you didn't make that up and I didn't make it up. I right. thought it was a collective because that's what it was called in the beginning, but it evolves like everything else and it evolved into something that I didn't own, I didn't have a voice in, but also publicly, especially in the Twin Cities, I was such an active community person that Everything Rhyme Sayers did or didn't do reflected on me. Sure. And they did and didn't do things that I wanted them to do and not do. Right. And it's nobody's business specifically what those things are. But like the the things that they did and things that they didn't do, I didn't control those things. I had a I could I would voice them. And I, you know, and you know, I sometimes we even had arguments over things, not with the artists, but the people that make decisions about business. Sometimes they were arguments. Sometimes they were screaming matches. You know what I'm saying? 
And sometimes we were in alignment and sometimes, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's, it's my, my main takeaway is like, man, it's very possible for a group of people, especially over a long period of time, for everybody to be there for the right reason. And it's still, sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta continue on, on your own path. Like that's, and that's really how I feel about it. And, um, you know, and I also never announced it. I never was like, I'm Leading no longer rhyme on rhyme right. series. Yeah, because it's like, dude, that's, that's not even, that would be, that would, it would kind of be a lie because, like you said, the crew part will always be that. Right. I will yeah. always, you know, Idea died in 2010. Does that mean he's not a part of Rhyme Sayers? Does no. that, you know, I made, we. how many albums have we put out since then? He's part of all those albums, even though he wasn't physically alive. Right. None of those albums exist without him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And he felt similar ways. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, me and him bonded over some of the challenge of that situation. And he he also was like, these people are all just... He's like, why is it so hard for people who are all dedicating their lives to something to make it work for everybody? And of course, for me and you, it's like, well, that's what the dunya is. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, what the dunya is. Exactly. And so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I just got to a place where I'm like, man... And I just also recently was talking with Ant. This is going to get me again. That's okay, but This is the good stuff. Ant was like... <laughs> Ant, Ant said to me recently, because I just spent a month with him in Minneapolis, and then we talked. I called him on his birthday, and he said, man, I just, I've been thinking ever since I saw you, you spent that month here. He's like, man, all the frustration that I could feel and the heaviness I could feel in you for those last couple years, they're all gone. That's amazing. He's like, man, you, you, he said, you were right and you did the right thing. Alhamdulillah. He's like, you, how well you are, how he's like, that, that frustration is gone, that anger is gone, that tension. He's like, you did the right thing. That's awesome. I mean, it's yeah. just, yeah, it, I, you know, and me being your friend, I've seen it and I, I could agree with that 100%. You know, I think you did. And I, the proof is also in what what has come after, you know. Um, so far, it's kind of been a podcast company, a management company where we, we're about to like dive into really what it's like to, to be our own record label. But to me, that's when we'll really see it. Because the the music that's coming, to me, I'm like, man, that's that's when it'll really, that's when we'll really see what's what. Cool, yeah, man. Hopefully, yeah. inshallah. So, as a label, have you ever thought about? I know this may be far off, or what, but signing a different another artist, like being that type of label, or is it kind of insular? Um, insular, I guess. Nah, yeah, man, okay. it's it's funny. I also, you know, how sometimes people are like. Sometimes, like, if your parents had a rough marriage, you're like, I'm never getting married. When I first met my wife, she told me she was never going to get married. And then we got married instantly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and it's, it was coming up on 20 years. But um, so I don't know. I mean, just, you know, I, I don't want to ever... I've seen how people can have great intentions and put all the sacrifice in and still have it be so challenging that, that it doesn't lead to the result you want. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so... You know what I mean? Like, I'm, 
I, I ended up having tension with people who put a lot of their life into trying to help me. And I know that's what they were doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so their feelings are very real. My feelings are very real. So at this stage, I'm just like, man, I don't want to be any other artists. I don't want to be their hopes. I don't yeah. want to be their boss. <laughs> I don't want to be part of their failure. I don't want to be. And and honestly, that's how atmosphere is. That's what Ann said is like, man, in your interview. I remember yeah, he said like, that. He said, I don't want to be is like, slug man, too, yeah. No, we are artists on this label, but people think they run the label. And to me, that feels unfair. To, that's one of the things that I'm like, man, the people who make the decisions, I wish they would put their names publicly and speak publicly about the decisions they make. Because it looks like the artists made all those decisions and we didn't. Mm. We did not. Yeah, we did. I, like I didn't have a say over who got booked at Soundset. I had no say over. I could suggest stuff, you know what I mean? Right. And maybe some of my suggestions were wait. Maybe things were acted on because of my suggestions. I didn't decide who did or didn't get booked at Soundset. I didn't decide who got signed or dropped. I didn't decide what. I didn't decide any of that. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And yeah. So you know, and so for Slug and Ant, they're like, man there's kind of this like mutual thing where like you guys run the label we run atmosphere they run atmosphere that's what they run yeah you know what i mean yeah but atmosphere is so intrinsic to the label that they're they are they have ownership of the label and i think they have a voice and maybe a vote but i don't even know like i'm not even part of that i don't even know i'm not even that's a different thing that right. I, those are discussions i'm not in Right, you know. Yeah, but I've, 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 I think Slug is wise for that. I mean, I've seen, you, but you want to help your friends. You want to be like whatever I have access to. I'm gonna. So the way Slug does it is he takes people on tour. So if he believes in somebody, he's like, I can't make your career happen, but I have a room full of people that are excited to watch music, and you can go on right before me. And see if what you can do with them. You can have full access to my audience on stage. So yeah. Slug has taken a million people on tour. He's one of the most generous human beings and artists I've ever known. He's Slug is one of the most generous human beings I've ever encountered. And everything that he actually can do for somebody, he will do. And I, man, there was this this uh, this artist from the Twin Cities called Mike the Martyr. Uh, it's another European American brother that became Muslim, and he's huh. very much attached to the street. But he was on a podcast recently in the Twin Cities, and he was like, "Dude, he's like, people don't know. He's like, man, there are guys that have been killed in the hood, and their family couldn't afford to bury them. Slug gave the family the money to bury them. Wow. Um, and nobody even knows. Sometimes right. the family doesn't even know. This guy was like, man." Slug gave me money to give to somebody's family one time because they were in the hospital and told me not to tell them where the money came from. Like there, there, there are artists in the Twin Cities who like, you know, Slug just gives them the money to put their album out. Wow. All types of stuff. And he would not want me to say this stuff, you know. Sure. But, um, but there's just, I always say that like, man, if that man were to, to, were to die earlier than, you know, than expected... The stories of that would start to come out about him, very similar to Prince. Like when Prince died, all these people were like, yo, Prince didn't let us tell the world that he funded our program. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The stories that would come out about Slug and his generosity to people over the years would be overwhelming. 
I know I don't even know a fraction of it, but I know that that man was, he was generous to me when we were both broke. Like when he wow. was completely broke. Like I remember one day he sold records for out of his record collection to get money to buy a sandwich and some walking around money and cigarette money. And he just played this big show with Run DMC where he made a few thousand dollars, but he signed that, he put that into the business. He put that into the label. Sure. That's the other thing is like, I wasn't, I wasn't, those guys put in years of work like that. They were poor, give, like giving all their money to the label, uh, you know, homes that they built, putting up homes that they like, uh, you know. Like their family house. Uh, using ho homes as collaterals. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Like of stuff that, that all happened before I got there. So once I realized like, oh, I thought this was mine and it's not, I couldn't even fault them. It's like, you guys were already doing this when I got here. Right. It so was like moving now I, I need to learn from you and just go build, I need to go build my thing now. Yeah. And the fact that BK1 is my partner in it, I mean, because he's the first person that he introduced me to them. Right. Like I was in the north side, they were on the south side. We met at that radio at the at, at BK's radio show. So That's so cool. You know, it's and, and so the the fact that me and BK are doing it together again is really crazy, man. It's it really, is, man. It's, it's a beautiful like... thing. But no, I don't want to be anybody's. I don't. I'm that. Yeah, I don't want to be anybody's record label. <laughs> nope, I'm good. I'll just you know. I, although you want to help your friends. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. like no, my, my friends that like there are friends that I have that I'm like, man, if I put my name on this and, and put some money behind it and put all this stuff behind it, could it help it go to the next level? You know what I mean? And, and am I selfish if I don't do that? And then I'm but I've just seen over and over and over again people do that. And most of the time people are dissatisfied. So I talk about therapy all the time, and I actually just started with a new therapist. I mentioned it last week, but uh, I did my first session with this guy on BetterHelp, and at the end of it, he said, man, you say you travel for work. Are you a musician? I said, yeah. Are you a rapper? Yeah. You're like a political, underground, like positive, conscious type of rapper? Yeah. Did you perform at this particular club back around like 2013 or so? Yes. I was working at the club that night. I met you. We had a conversation. I wasn't a licensed therapist yet, but me and you actually met. What's your stage name? I said, Brother Ali. He said, yeah, I thought it was you as soon as we signed on. Uh, I know your music, and we've met before, and you should figure out if you're okay with that. He's like, I'm, not, I'm cool with it as long as you are. So I thought about it. I said, you know, I'm going to do a couple more sessions with this guy. And from talking to him, I already, we this we just had our second session, already had a breakthrough, a major one. And whenever you have them in therapy, they, they don't look like they look in the movies. It's not this big tearful, and then my mom did this. And I mean, sometimes it's that. If it's got to be that, it's got to be that. But that's not all there is. A lot of therapy is just you talk through stuff, and then they just ask a simple question. What's the role of compassion for yourself in all this? 
Or I remember you saying something about, you know, having maybe back in the day you had a low sense of self-worth. And I wonder if maybe some of that is showing up in this type of thinking. You know what I mean? He probably didn't even ask it that directly. But then you start talking through stuff and you realize like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And it seems super like, of course, of course, how could I not have seen this? Because I'm living my life inside my body, having to survive with all this stuff that's happened to me and that I've lived through and witnessed and experienced and done and all these feelings that go along with it and all this, these things I had to build into myself to survive it all. And I can't see myself. And so sitting with somebody that like, man, this dude is not pretending to be Sigmund Freud. He's just a cool dude who really, really listens to me. And most of what he does is repeat back to me either what I just said to where the, at the beginning it's kind of annoying. Like, I know I just said that, but he just repeats it in a different way, slightly different way. I said, okay, yeah, and then I keep going. And then he repeated that. And I said something else, and then he repeated that. And then he repeated something I said 20 minutes ago. And then he repeated something that I said in our last talk. And then stuff starts to come together for me in a way that I'm like, oh, yes, okay. Breakthrough. Breakthrough. It's worth every penny. You get the right person. And it, like I said, it's not a storybook. It's not a movie. It is not like the movies. But it's dope. And that's why I'm grateful to have a partnership with BetterHelp because I use it and it's worked for me. And it's a really good way for people to access therapy. Go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. And then we both get money. So you don't have to, you get a discount on your first month of therapy. And they also give me and BK1 a little bit of money. Uh, it's like, like a commission and to help the, with the work that we do at Travelers Media and on the podcast. I use it. I believe in it. I suggest it. If you want to be a person that's like, no, I don't need therapy. Uh, the thing that's making you say that is like your fear probably of holding on to these survival things that might not be serving you anymore. So just a thought, go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, get in on a therapy journey. Me as a white person, as a white man, um, where do I fit? Uh, somebody who's good, who who feels like they have a good heart and wants to help people in general and make the world a better place, you know, where do I fit in? Where do I, how do yeah. I, how do I produce something that's fruitful for everybody or for, you know, the people that are being hurt or whatever, you know, like, yeah. It's, uh, well, that one of the things, one of the things that I think is really important that that's necessary is to realize that for, for white people or white bodies or like, you know, again, these word these words sit differently on people for people who are considered white, like mm -hmm. to first be like, this is harming me. Yeah. This is harming me. This is harming me. I believe that my father died of whiteness. Mm -hmm. I, you know what I'm saying? My father died of alcoholism and suicide. But when you look at it, it's like, what was really wrong in your life? He was given an idea of what a white man's life was supposed to be, and his, white, his life wasn't that. Right. It wasn't the most terrible thing either. Like, he'd been divorced. He went bankrupt. He bought a house and lost it a few times. And, I mean, a man got married four times. One of the same lady <laughs> twice. Yeah, he divorced the same lady twice. He started over. He had several, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's just like, 
like, and but what Chappelle said in his special about like, man, I got a homie that went became a lawyer, married the wrong, you know, all this stuff. He works at Foot Locker. Never occurred to this guy to kill himself. Right. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And uh, Imam Shane says it. Chaplain Shane says it in Redneck Muslim and just in general. When uh, a sister asked him in that in that documentary, and I know her, her, her that's I, man, that's the homie Majida from Brooklyn. Uh-huh. She was like, "Why would white people give up their privilege?" And the thing is, like, and and the word privilege needs to be talked about too, because that word just means different things to different people. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's not that that's not true. It is true, but it means different things. A, a white person hears that different than how everybody else hears it, and just like. A healthy person doesn't know they're healthy. Only sick people know that someone's healthy is healthy. They say uh, one of the great scholars of Islam said, health is a crown on the head of a healthy person that only the sick can see. And privilege is a crown. uh, Privilege is a thing that unless you have it, when you have it, you don't even know it. That's the thing about it. And, but I don't like, I don't, I think we got to go beyond that word. Anyway, Majida asked Shane. Yeah. Why would you give that up? And Shane said, to regain the soul, to regain my humanity. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's that's what it's really about. I mean, this thing is like, and and so when I came across, when I first met Resma and saw the way that he broke it down and the way that he talks about it, it's funny because he brought us in and he was like, I want to make I want you guys to make a song about whiteness. He got me and Mike the Martyr and some folks together. I was like, I want you guys and uh Jake Verdin. He was like, I, I want you guys to make a song uh, about whiteness. And I played him the song Before They Called You White. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you already made it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He was like, oh, you already made it. It wasn't out yet, but I played him that song. And he's like, that's what I'm talking about, brother. And so like, <laughs> me and Resma have been very close. Yeah. But what Resma talks about is he's, one of the things he says, everything that white bodies did to black bodies, they first had done to them by other white bodies in Europe. And the dehumanization, and you can't, when you try to dehumanize somebody else, you first dehumanize yourself. Right. You're the only one that you can really dehumanize. And so, and what Malcolm says, so it's like, well, what do we do? Resma says, white people, white bodies need to be with other white bodies and build culture around uh, somatic, like in, in the, with bodies, uh, anti racist culture. That's what that's what needs to, and that's going to take generations. Like being in a room, being and and with a physical thing, and build culture around it, and have all the messy con and see the things that come up when white people are together. Like I've been in these meetings of like you know, uh, white organizers and stuff. The amount of rage that comes boiling to the surface immediately in those places between white people is profound. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that's got to get worked through. Malcolm X said that he went to, he used to, he believed what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught, which is the white man is the devil. He comes back from, he, then, he, then he leaves the nation of Islam, he goes to Mecca, he comes back and he said, I, I met people that in America would be called white, but they didn't go through that conditioning of the last 400 years. Right. So they don't see themselves as white. And he said, if white people would learn Islam, that it might help them become human beings and rejoin the human family. I believe that. But it's not as simple as just becoming Muslim, but I'm saying, so like the room that you were in, you know what I mean? Where it's like a room full of people singing together, and, it's, and that wasn't all white people, but singing together, crying together, 
praying together, laughing together, mourning together, moaning together. Yeah, um, right. You know what I mean? Yep. Like very likely. So two of those people just got divorced. Two of those people in that room five years from now that, that aren't married now will be married and might have a baby together. That's how that community works. There are guys in that room that we will wash each other's bodies, including the private parts and everything, right. when we die. Yeah. Like there's guys in that room that when they die, I will get on a plane if I have to. And like they know that I'm going to wash their body head to toe. I'm going to wrap them in cloth and I'm going to put them in the ground. And I'm going to be there with their families and I'm going to. And so some people will look at the spiritual bypassing of, of religion. And I understand that because there's a lot of that too. And I do know white people that convert to Islam and they're like, hey, I'm not racist anymore. I converted to Islam. It's like, no, it's not like that. Right. It's not as simple as all that. True. But I will say that everything that Rezma talks about is in Islam. Hmm. And, it, and, and, that's, I, and I think that's what... So Malcolm had an experience of like being with people and washing his body with people and praying with people and like, you know... There's a there, that it's a very embodied, it's a spiritual, it's a mental, it's a physical, it's a financial, it's a dietary, it's a cultural, it's a family, it's a lived experience in every single part of life, that's healing, that's humanizing, that brings about that's that that the more we live it, it, it brings out equilibrium and balance, and salam. That's what salam is. Salam is wholeness, it's equilibrium, it's balance, it's to be right, it's to be healed. Complete. It's complete. Yeah. Yeah. So you say Allah says, prepare yourself for a day when the only thing that's gonna that's gonna save you is a sound heart and it's you know, qalbu salam, salam, salim. So like that's the only thing that's gonna is to, for your heart to be intact. And for your life to be intact. So, and Islam is named after that too. The religion, Muslims, all of that. Assalamu alaikum is a prayer. May you be well. May you be whole. Right. So, like, it's it's for somebody that hasn't experienced it. It's like I understand why you don't get it, or why you're suspicious, or why it's like, oh, that's nice for you, or it's just a pipe dream, or what. I get it. And there are people that, and maybe even the majority of people are spiritually bypassing, but what's to be done about it. And, and and it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have to become Muslim in order to do these things. But I mean, you know that when somebody becomes a Muslim, you get you have permission to radically reimagine yourself. Absolutely. And to connect with like, what am I really? What am I really? There's a reason that the Nation of Islam said, called themselves the so-called Negro. Because for year, for centuries, it's like, that's what you are. That's what I am. I'm a Negro. And so when, when Elijah Muhammad says, you're not just because that's what that's a name white people gave you when they stole you from your from being the the creators of civilization. That's a name that we, you know, and you, we go to where our Sheikh is in West Africa. You go to West Africa, you see, oh, this is where all this human stuff comes from. Right. Man. And I not that they I don't have problems there. and not that Some, they Yeah, I'm I, yeah. I pray we can go together. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I mean, you see problems there too. It's not, it's not, this is not a romanticized thing. And it's not that the Muslim, I've had my heart broken in the Muslim community. I've, I've felt very taken advantage of. I was attached to somebody that I, in some ways was a, you know, mm -hmm. 
I've I've had all the experiences. Yeah. It's not a romanticized, this is not a utopian thing. It's a human at thing. All. It's a human thing. It it's a human thing and it's a project. Yeah. Like I'm a project, right. our community is a project, this whole thing. But everything that Rezma's talking about is in Islam and it's there in a way that's been preserved. And it's there in a way that genuinely transforms human beings. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And there's a reason Malcolm X said that. There's a reason Muhammad Ali said that. There's a reason that, you know. So this this view of Islam is what Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali yeah. lived. So to me, it's like, you know, but not everybody's going to be Muslim. I understand that. You know, so it's to me, it's fine if people are like, that sounds nice. But it's like, okay, take whatever inspiration you can. I'm totally cool with that. And I've spent years talking to people about Islam who still have never become Muslim. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's not my business. That's between them and the creator, right. you know? Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah. And it's not like I'm holding back some bit of it's not like I'm holding back some love that it and then when you become Muslim, then I'll open then I'll fully open up the account of love to you. Right. You know. No, it's not. But there is a bond. Sure <laughs> there is a bond with, you know. There is a bond there that does happen. Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, we we know that we are made by the Creator, the one and only true God, Allah. You know, uh, that's a bond in in and of itself. You know. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it's just different types and different levels, and lately, you know, oh, I know, like we're at one with all with everything that is. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, we're at one with everybody who seeks the one. So right. when we, we say the one true God, Allah, and we say there's no God but Allah, we do not mean that other people's gods and their search for God, their relationship to God, their desire for God, their seeking God, their experience with God. It's not to say that that's not true. Right. Those things are true. What we, what we in fact mean is the thing that those people are seeking, what those people are experiencing, what those people are bonding with, is Allah. that thing is, is Allah. Totally. Yeah. And basically Allah means the the reality of the divine that doesn't belong to anybody that's not a thing that's not a person that doesn't have a location that's not specifically connected to one group and more than others yeah. so people have these conceptions about god and so are about allah or about the divine and so that's what that's what the quran corrects you know is like having these limiting views of god like it basically that's what it that's what la ilaha illallah means we're not going to have any limiting views of God and we're not going to have substitutes for Allah. So like my work can't substitute for Allah. My love can't substitute for Allah. Those are all going to be part of relating to Allah. Yeah. My, my group, my music, my therapy, my gardening, my right. <laughs> country, my whatever. Sure. There is no substitute for the divine. Like wow. all of those things are created things that have a beginning and end and in between points they change. Right. And they're all going to be imperfect. They're all going to be limited, but they spring forth from the, 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 the one with, who's everlasting without, who has no beginning and no end. Who, the one who exists by right. right. That's the right. one who, doesn't, who, who, who isn't limited by form, who isn't limited by space, who isn't limited by time. The one who writes space and time creates space and time, so we experience space and time. But uh, you know, and like we talked about uh, the the things that happen in our lives, Allah allows us to experience them in a linear way. First, you experienced 
you know, your childhood. Then you experience your life as a young adult. Then you experience being on the ins- behind the wall. Then you experience getting free. Then you experience getting clean. Then you experience meeting your wife. Then, and I, I, the, you know, I'm, I'm messing up the the, con- the yeah, yeah. a little bit. No, but I understand. But then you experience your your son having a unique life. Right. Then you know what I'm saying. Then you experience this. Then you experience losing a job. To Allah wrote all of that before, like. Allah has always known all of those things. Right. But but we experience them in this linear way because of the journey that Allah has us on. And so people, you know, so that's what we're talking about when we say la ilaha illallah. There, there are not many gods, you know what I'm saying? Or people say, well, yeah, religious people say, well, you think your God is the right God and you say your God is the right God. La ilaha illallah means there is only one. Right. And the differences or and flaws and limitations are in our own perception. Right. You know what I'm saying? And there and 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 to say that there's not a God means that we're gonna make a God out of something else. Yep. You know what I'm saying? A, a human being Ourselves, is going to money. Yeah. I mean, like we're gonna worship something. We're gonna get up every day and serve something. It's either gonna be our our appetites, our goals are whatever like we're gonna we're gonna get up every day and serve something even if even if we get up even even people that are like sitting in their house like they're are serving a specific desire yeah you know that's that's a specific thing too that makes us hold back it makes us hold back our participation our energy you know what i'm saying so like everybody is going to serve something and so what that statement means is like Ultimately, we we want to be in service of the source of all meaning, so that because it's either that or it's going to be something finite and fallible, and it ends. That ends and that will fail us. Right. Everything in the dunya is dying, yep, and 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 it's and it's decaying. Right. And like I talk to my daughters about this all the time. And my daughter, my five-year-old, they love talking about death. It's so funny. They're just like, Daddy, we die in the dunya. Everyone dies in the dunya. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, but then after that, we never we never die again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like once we're done with the dunya, then we don't die again. Amir Suleiman says, we're dying. Those people are done with death. I heard. Uh, yeah. That's beautiful. Like they're done with death. So like, you know what I'm saying? But it, And it doesn't mean that this life is nothing because this life is where we get to see ourselves and show what am I? What am I when I'm a soul inside a body? Mm-hmm. Like, what, 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 you know what I mean? And I have the ability to forget. I have the ability to lie. I have the ability to be lazy. I have the ability to, um, you know, to, to harm. I have the ability to help. I have the ability to remember. I have the ability to create beauty. I have the ability to harm myself and others. I have the ability to make deceive. people feel amazing or make them feel horrible, mm-hmm. deceive, yep. guide. guide. I have all these abilities. I have, I have, yeah. So what did I do? And so when people talk about the day of judgment, like they're just trying to control the masses, that they want us all to be scared. No one, like if anybody is like, are, do my do my actions matter or not? Because when I see them all just exactly for what they are, I, I'm lying to myself if I, if I don't think that there's something terrifying about that. Right. No, absolutely. And that if not for mercy, if it's not for mercy, you know what I'm saying? But the divine is incredible, like Allah is, incre- is merciful. So 
And also his understanding of the fact that we're put in this crazy situation to show who we are. And so then once we see on, 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 that, on the day of standing, the day of replaying, once we see that for what it is, then we're shown something about who we really are. Who were you when you had the chance to do something about it? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's why we have the sharia. That's why we have the outward practice. People are like, well, I want to be spiritual and not religious. I understand. But it's like, but okay, but so then who's going to decide what my actions should be? Right. Because I have the ability to think that I can lie to myself and think that good thing, that bad things are good. I can also deceive myself and do something good for 80% the good reason and 20% the wrong reason. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of that in a lot of our decisions. You know, it's not always 100% anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, even yeah, in that's, the good that's, things. And that's the, the, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In all of that, in all of that, you know, like our, our good things, they're all, and that's what we immediately, when the Muslims get done making salat, we say, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah. Allah forgive me, Allah forgive me. When we just literally got done washing and praying. Right. Because the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, you know, for the Muslims, I'm not worried that you're going to straight up worship an idol, but I'm worried for you that you're going to have ostentation or like showmanship in your in your worship of Allah. Mm. So like you stand up and, and he said, and sometimes it can just be you beautify your prayer because you know someone's watching. Mm-hmm. So it's like if I'm praying f- completely for Allah, then it makes no difference if I'm on stage at Madison Square Garden or in a dark room in my basement at three in the morning. I pray the exact same way, but I don't pray the exact same way. I'm a little more nice when there's people there. Sure. And and that's a type of idolatry too that is, you know, that's in insincerity. So then then the thing becomes, how do I become sincere? You know, yeah, and like that's hard. It really is. Like, <laughs> the road to the road to sincerity it's struggle. The, the the is is struggle and is taking oneself to account, right? To be self accusing, yeah, without being self deprecating, because even self accusing can turn into a, a, a you know this this like show of self deprecation. Self deprecation is not self-awareness and self-accounting they're different it's something i it's need easy to work to make on. <laughs> a show about we all do that's it but it's part of it yeah. and, and that's the path we talk about like the journey and doing it together you know what i'm saying like so like you make a mistake you you know what i'm saying i just been here longer and i got great teachers so when you make a mistake you're like oh my god am i a hypocrite and i'm like no nah, that's part of yeah. it you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah. no that's part of it because Somebody had to say to me, no, that's part of it. We we just keep going. Yes, you made a mistake. This is an opportunity to renew the intention, to realize the 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 weaknesses we still have, to realize how much growth. We've come a long way. We got a long way to go. Right. So we just keep going. Yeah. And that's, you know, and so that's the whole thing about being co-travelers. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like it's a beautiful thing, you know, it really is. And I, you know, and without co-travelers, it would be really hard to do this. And I know we've already discussed that, but having somebody to reflect on and see yourself in is a must, you know, I would say. And it's never one-sided. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
we do believe we do believe in in a divine hierarchy. Now we don't believe in false hierarchy. So white supremacy is a false hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, certain types of the idea that some the people with the most money are the most valuable. That's a false hierarchy. Uh, but we do believe that Allah created things in ranks. You know what yeah. I mean? And we do believe that there are roles to play. But even the greatest spiritual guides, the true sincere spiritual guides, which is what makes them the greatest, in their mind, when we thank them, they're like, you don't understand what you're doing for me. Right. Like it's it's reciprocal. Yeah, it is. Except for with Allah. Allah is not in need of us. Right. Like Allah has no needs of us, including our worship, including our belief, including our sincerity, including our service. Allah has no need of us. We're completely in need of Allah. Exactly. Yeah. But Allah loved to be known. Yeah. Allah said, I was a hidden treasure. I love to be known. So Allah loves the relationship. So without need, completely without need, and that's love. That that's is the, love. That's the greatest love. When there's no need and when there's no... It's like, I, it's, I'm, I don't love you because I need something from you. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I, I love you because of the reality of love. Allah is El-Wadud, the source from which all love flows. So every love. So that's why the, like, the love of the dog and the love of the like sunrise and the love of... Amir Suleiman says, I, I've come to realize that the same thing that draws a, a fiend to the pipe is the same thing that draws a human being to the light. Mm. So like e- even addiction is like a person is seeking, they're just, it's just a, a, a like they're seeking, um, we're seeking because we all have addictions. I'm an addict in my own way. Sure. And you know about that. We don't have to talk about that publicly. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like we all know that we struggle with stuff Absolutely. and we have addictions and like, you know, um, and, you know, so like, but what we're seeking in that moment is what's wrong with it is that it's a counterfeit version of something real. And ultimately it's an idol, not because there's something wrong with the idol, but because what the person is actually seeking is the, the, the boundless divine, the boundless Allah. So like, it's not wrong to worship a statue because it's a statue, but it's like, that thing isn't worthy of our word, but but also what we are worthy of connecting with a divine, boundless creator and source of everything. You know what I'm saying? And that's the source of that. That's the source of that love. So like, so when we go to when a person goes to drugs because they're looking for the feeling of love, mm-hmm. it's like. What's wrong isn't the right. Allah says about intoxicants, man, Allah says there's good in it and there's harm in it, but the harm outweighs the good. Allah is saying like, hey, man, I know, I know, like, man, crack seems like it makes, makes people feel amazing. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> For a minute. Uh, For... Pills, pills and all of it. It looks like it makes people feel amazing. The, the, the good feeling isn't the harm of it. It's the falseness of it. It's the fleeting nature of it. Yeah. It's like what you're actually looking for is love. What you're actually looking for is connection. What you're actually looking for is, is the... And that only comes with being connected to, the, to Allah himself, to God, to the divine directly. Right. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because then that connection makes all the crazy stuff that happen, it just gives it meaning. It does. It just makes me fearless. It just makes me selfless. May Allah make us all that. It just makes us real. Yeah. And it may, it gives us the ability to handle everything. So when people are like, that's that's spiritual bypassing. No, I'm sorry. All of our heroes that, sh- and, and that showed up and gave it all, 
they did that because they were connected to the divine in a way where like, all right, you can threaten me by killing me, but I'm not afraid of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you can threaten me by taking my reputation, but I'm not afraid right. of that. I don't worship. I don't worship my reputation. I don't worship people's opinion of me. I don't worship my, even my life and breath. Yeah. Even my own life. I don't worship my life. Malcolm said, "I live." <laughs> Malcolm said, "I live like a man that died years ago." Oof. <laughs> I'm not afraid of you killing me. Wow. I died years ago. And some people said, well, when he went to prison? No, when he became Muslim. Yeah. Like, I'm, I belong to Allah. Inna, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. That's what we say when people die. But it means everything belongs to Allah and everything returns to Allah. Everything's here on loan. This too shall pass. It's like, you know what I'm saying? It's true. Yeah. So like a person that lives like that, there's no other self-actualization like that. There's no higher level of awareness or consciousness than that. There's nothing greater than that. And so everybody in every tradition that's seeking that, it's like, yeah, well, I feel you. Right. You know Absolutely. I mean? Yeah. And to get to that place, like you're saying, you're, you are fearless of the world, worldly things, you know, even death. But then along the way, you're corny and you make a bunch of mistakes and you you got sure. all the, you talk like that and then, you know what I'm saying? And then you get off a call like this and just go do something freaking so corny. <laughs> right. And then, you know what yeah. I mean? So then it's like, okay, you know we're what I mean? It's like the thing it. to just keep, I just, we just keep coming back, keep coming back, <laughs> keep coming back, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I just yeah. want to say thank you. Uh, this is a, was an amazing conversation. Uh, I enjoy spending time with you all the time. And uh to get to spend you know a few hours with you <clears throat> just learning and being able to ask you questions that you know i hope that other people get something from and also that maybe i haven't asked before and just had assumptions about it's pretty cool so i just want to say thank you so much and i appreciate our friendship i appreciate our brotherhood and uh you know you helped give me a gift that i can never really repay and that's um just show me the way you help guide me to the place I'm at. And uh, for that, I'll be forever grateful. Man, that's beautiful. Yeah, Allah guides us, Allah guides us all through together. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I love you. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing, man. I love you, brother. Yeah. I love you. Let's do this again soon. Okay. Have a good day. Assalamu alaikum. Wa Special thanks to my dear friend, my brother, Dan Chisholm, for being so gracious and open with his time. He also tells a lot of his story. If you go to brotherali.com in the join section or, brother, or brotherali.com slash join, join the caravan or log into the caravan if you're already part of it. Um, and you'll hear me kind of talking to him. And we talk through how our friendship came to be. We talk about his life story. It's really dope. And there's a lot of other dope stuff there, too. Uh, make sure to like, share, subscribe, rate, comment, all those things. Uh, we got a tour coming up, you know what I'm saying, with the living legends and the grouch. Make sure to go to brotherali.com in the events section and uh, get the tickets now. Like, get them quick and be there at those shows because that's the tour. You know what I'm saying? People be like, well, maybe he'll come back. And uh, that right now, that's the tour. And I am fully intending on having amazing underground hip-hop shows. You got the whole Living Legends crew, 
I don't know if Grouch has announced who's opening those nights, but they're dope. It's going to be hard to come to follow them. That's a great opener. When you got established party rocking, doing this for 20-some years, me, and the opener got me feeling like, all right, I'm going to have to bring it. I know I got to bring it because this opener is going to bring it too. But then you got the whole Living Legends crew. This is going to be a whole tour of... And they got a new album. This is going to be a tour of celebrating what we love so much about this little secret subgenre of beautiful, strange weirdos that make really dope rap music. So go to brotherali.com. You get all of that stuff across the board. Uh, shout to Zakat Foundation. Shout out to BetterHelp. BetterHelp.com slash travelers. Get down on therapy. Uh, special thanks to Dan Chisholm. Thank you, Amna Mirza, Mansour, Panawala, DJ Last Word, Darian Washington. Special shout out to my man Omar B, who listens to this podcast, and that's my dude, and I love him. And um, so um, something tells me he might hear all the way to the end. Omar B, I love you, man. Send me a voice note, brother. Hope you're doing good. And uh, I love all y'all a lot. We'll be back next week, inshallah. And we greet you in the Arabic words of peace that mean may peace be upon you. May you be whole. May you be solid. May you be one. May you be as you were intended to be in your full self. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.